This is KXSF 102.5 FM, streaming worldwide at www.kxsf.fm. And you're tuned in to Spark with Kelly Marlowe. Informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. Today I'm talking with Kristen Neff, a leading expert and researcher on self-compassion. We will be talking about how we can build resilience through self-compassion. Thank you for joining me on Spark today, Kristen. Sure, happy to be here. How would you define self-compassion? Well, self-compassion, quite simply, is compassion turned inward. It means we use the same sort of support, kindness, warmth when we're struggling that we more typically show to a close friend that we cared about. And research shows that it's incredibly powerful for well-being. And why are we uncomfortable with showing ourselves that kind of warmth and fuzziness that we're willing to show other people? <laughs> well, by the way, it doesn't have to be fuzziness. Sometimes we need to like use tough love with people we care about, right? And say, hey, right. you got to make a change. So it's not all about the warm fuzzies. But I think there's a lot of reasons we are uncomfortable. Um, one is, uh, actually the number one reason research shows is that people are afraid that if they're uh, kind and supportive to themselves, they'll lose their motivation. They really think that beating themselves up, you know, using the whip is the most effective way to get themselves going. But research shows it's the exact opposite. You know, shame is not exactly a get up and go mindset. <laughs> we shame ourselves so we didn't do anything. Um, and we find that, again, if you're encouraging, and it may be tough, it may be saying, hey, you got to make a change, or this is not working for you. But that type of uh, response that comes from a place of care and support as opposed to, like, you're inadequate, you aren't good, is actually much more effective in motivating change. Sounds like people who feel that they have to get it right are less likely to practice self-compassion. Well, certainly, and people who are perfectionists, um, tend to have lower levels of self-compassion. One of the things self-compassion gives you is it makes you less of a perfectionist. Again, it doesn't mean that your standards are any lower. You may still like want to achieve just as much, and you may have the same high expectations for yourself. The whole difference is what happens when you don't meet them. So self-compassionate people, they don't beat themselves up. They like pick themselves up. They, feel, they figure out what can I learn from the situation so that I can improve. And they try upset if they don't meet their goals. They may start criticizing themselves. That may lead to performance anxiety. It may lead to depression. It may lead to procrastination. So people who are perfectionists, that they, they, they want good things for themselves. But actually, sometimes they shoot themselves in the foot by being so unrelenting when they don't reach their goals. So it sounds like the fear is like we'll be too soft on ourselves and not focus on the end goal if we tell ourselves that it's okay, don't worry so much. Yeah, exactly. But you're not even necessarily saying you're okay, right? So if your child, let's say your child gets failing grades in school, you probably aren't going to say it's okay. You want your child to do better. But, you know, why do you want your child to do better? Do you want the child to do better? Do you want to communicate the message that, you're, you know, I hate you and you're, you're unworthy if you don't do better? Or do you want to say, hey, the bottom line is I love you, but I want you to do better because I care about you. You know, it's important for your future. And that type of motivation that comes from a place of care as opposed to being, you know, because you're afraid of being inadequate is actually much more uh, effective and sustainable in the long run. It's kind of interesting you bring that up because we're more likely to say to ourselves that this shouldn't have happened and we focus on what we did wrong 
And then yeah. as a result, it's a more common scenario of how we interact with our kids, which is less likely for them to learn self-compassion then, right? Because we always say, what did you do wrong? Why did you do that? And you need to fix it. Right. The thing about compassion is it's really based on wisdom. I mean, if you look at, like, you know, historically or in philosophic traditions, compassion sees all the causes and conditions that came together in order for something to occur, and that gives you understanding. And so instead of saying that the person is bad, you can still say, hey, this went wrong. Or you could still say, this is what you did wrong without needing that to mean that you're bad. Right, because yeah, we all make mistakes. We all do things wrong, and it, and it's and it's good to correct what we've done wrong if we want to achieve our goals. So again, it's not letting ourselves off the hook. In fact, self-compassion, the research shows, is it makes people take more personal responsibility. Yeah, I screwed up. I did this wrong, but just because you did something wrong doesn't mean that you're wrong or that you're bad as a person. And so it's really differentiating between the behavior and the self. What you're saying is we need to reframe the way we're talking to ourselves. Absolutely. Say, hey, that didn't work out. That didn't go well. I you know, made a mistake. I failed. That's just honest. You don't want to say, oh, it's fine. If it's not fine, that's not helping you by saying it's fine if it's not, right? You know, people are afraid it's going to, like, harm them if they're being self-compassionate. Well, if it harms you, it's by definition not self-compassionate because self-compassion is all about the alleviation of suffering. And so we use wisdom to see, well, what's most likely to alleviate our suffering? Sometimes that means taking a break. Sometimes it means not taking a break. Like self-indulgence is not alleviating our suffering. Self-indulgence causes us harm in the long run. That's why it's not a self-compassionate thing to do. But, you know, the thing is we have to use wisdom to figure out what's right for me in this situation. We can't, like, have simple black and white answers. Um, The important thing is that we look at the behavior instead of judging ourselves as worthless. Because when we judge ourselves as worthless and we shame ourselves, it doesn't help anybody. When we take responsibility through self-compassion, we should then not judge like, oh, that was so stupid. And instead say, okay, well, you know, let's let's just look at what we can do differently, but in a nicer way. Think, think of like a really good coach who gets the most out of the, you know, his or her players, right? Now, coaches who are really mean and abusive, they do get something out of their players, but co- the players will tell you afterward that, you know, it, it was so much less effective than if the coach just focused on how to improve our game, right? So the best coaches, they may be very exacting and have very high standards, but it's almost clear that I can do it, I've got support, or is it making me feel like I'm worthless, I'm no good? And a lot of the messages we give, ironically, because we think it's going to help ourselves, actually, you know, undermines us. Self-compassion then about the way you talk to yourself? It's about the way you talk to yourself. It's also about, like, you're basically your, your emotional tone towards yourself. Like, is it warm and supportive or is it harsh and judgmental? And sometimes that's words. And some people, they don't, they don't use harsh words, but it's just like a feeling of coldness or disappointment or a feeling of shame. All those approaches to the self um, aren't helpful. So it's really the stance you adopt to yourself, towards yourself. Is it supportive and helpful, or is it just judging and condemning? And we know that the first stance is much more effective. You've written about the myth of what people consider self-compassion to be or what it is. Could you talk about that? So one myth I have been talking about, the myth that it's going to undermine your motivation. But there are others. For instance, a big myth is that self-compassion is weak. And I have to say, part of this is gender, because I think compassion is is a female thing, and females are weak. (laughs) You know, it's like, oh, yeah? 
<laughs> right? So what we know from the research is that self-compassion is one of the most powerful sources of strength, coping, and resilience that we have available. Right. So when when things get tough, for instance, there's a lot of research on combat veterans who come back from seeing action in Iraq or Afghanistan. Those veterans were able to be self-compassionate about their experience instead of judging themselves or shaming themselves. They kind of gave them a lot of they gave themselves a lot of understanding, a lot of support, a lot of kindness. They were much less likely to develop post-traumatic stress syndrome, you know, and get through their experience more, more powerfully. Same thing going through a divorce or raising special needs kids or dealing with cancer. And so, in other words, the, the more supportive you are to yourself when times get tough, the stronger you'll be. So that's one myth. Um, another big one is that it's selfish, right? People really think that self-compassion, a part of it is because the word self is there. I mean, we, we could just as easily call it inner compassion, right? Because believe it or not, self-compassion actually reduces the sense of separate self, reduces selfishness. Um, and that's because I haven't defined this yet, but there's actually three different components to self-compassion. One is the kindness that I've been talking about, um, but there's also two other important elements. One is mindfulness, which is basically that we see our situation clearly. We don't like ignore our pain. We don't like just, you know, just carry on. We don't belittle it. We also don't run away with it in a dramatic way. We just kind of see things as they are. And then really important, uh, what differentiates compassion from pity is other people. So the word compassion in Latin, the word passion means to suffer, but con means with. There's an inherent connectedness in compassion. Instead of saying, like, poor me or poor you, it's like, wow, everyone struggles. Everyone has hardship in life. Everyone's imperfect. And that sense of connectedness in self-compassion means that it's actually not selfish. It's not self-focused. And so for that reason, like, say you make a mistake or you're going through a really hard time, when you recognize that, hey, this is just part of the human condition, everyone struggles, everyone makes mistakes, everyone fails, but you feel more connected to others, and that actually helps you to be more compassionate to others and more giving to others as well. So self-compassion helps yourself and it helps others. Since you're saying, why did it happen to me, you have to look at, look at it through the perspective that it happens to everybody it happens to everyone. Yeah, and by the way, that's not to say that, you know, suffering's the same. It's not like all lives matter, you know. I mean, there, are, there are real differences in people's experience based on, you know, whether it's systemic racism or whether it's personal trauma history or just, you know, whatever has happened to you. People don't suffer the same amount, but all people do suffer one way or another, right? And certainly, whatever you've gone through, there's certainly probably you know, hundreds, thousands, maybe even millions of people who've gone through a very similar situation that you've gone through. And so when we remember that, when we remember that we aren't alone, then we feel kind of more empowered by our connections with others. Oftentimes, we criticize ourselves because we think that this shouldn't happen. You know, I shouldn't have made a mistake or this, this event shouldn't have happened. Like, well, who says? You know, that's what human life is about. You know, no one signed up for the plan of being human would say you know, everything's going to be perfect and you're going to be perfect. And so when we remember that, which is just a type of wisdom, it actually gives us more strength because we realize it's not just us. We aren't alone in this. This is just part of life. And that kind of facilitates our ability to cope with it. No, you make a really good point because it's so easy to turn inward and then just start this dialogue that just feeds itself. Exactly. It's just me. Why me? And then you can either say either because it's like, you know, you're just blaming yourself because I'm so lame or self. None of those responses actually help. 
right? So if you want to say, hey, this has happened, it happens to everyone, but what, what's my best chance out of this? You can take responsibility for what's occurred. Maybe you don't blame yourself for it, but you take responsibility for it. Then it gives you much more ability to, to change things for the better. Well, it helps to understand that you're, you're still taking responsibility as part of self-compassion. Because like you said, the myth is that it's pity. You're not taking, you're feeling sorry for yourself and you're not really thinking about your way out. And that's why it's considered soft. It's a total misconception of what self-compassion is. So the research clearly shows, let's say you did something to hurt someone in the past. And there's this research where they help some people like be self-compassionate about what they did. And other people, they like boosted their self-esteem. You know, don't worry, you're a great person. Or maybe they said nothing. And they find that self-compassion increases personal responsibility. Because it's safe to take responsibility when you're supportive and kind to yourself. Like if the bottom line is, okay, I messed up. I'm so sorry. I made a mistake. But, you know, it is human. All people do things they shouldn't do. Then that gives me the safety to say, wow, okay, I'm so sorry. What can I do to repair it? The self-compassionate people, they apologize more often because it's safe to take responsibility and say, ah, I did it. Mea culpa. They actually are more likely to feel guilt and less likely to feel shame. So guilt is like, I did something bad and shame is I am bad. If your approach is just shaming yourself, at all possible, you're going to want to avoid taking responsibility because it's just too painful to own up to what you've done. But if you say, hey, you know, everyone's imperfect, everyone makes mistakes, really, I didn't make something that I I I wish I hadn't done, then that actually gives you more ability to take responsibility and then repair it. Things like if you think about them, they're they're kind of obvious, but we have all these myths in our culture that get in the way, which is kind of my life's purpose to try to clear up those myths. I probably had the same misconceptions myself, but you have written that our focus typically is on self-esteem. Yes. You've also talked about the fact that self-esteem is different from self-worth. Yeah, so well, so, and, it, and it kind of depends how you're using these, these terms. So self-worth, the sense of worthiness you, you get from self-compassion, right? But the sense of self-worth you get from self-compassion is like unconditional. Now, I'm a human being, and all human beings are intrinsically worthy of some sort of care and respect. You know, it's just kind of, it's not about me in particular, it's just about the fact that I'm a human being. So self-esteem, usually the way it's earned is like being special and above average. You know, it's something about me, and I, you know, and it's not okay to be average, <laughs> to be special and above average. And so that leads to social comparison. Like, is she prettier than me? Or is he more successful than me? And those types of social comparisons actually undermine our sense of connection. Self-esteem is also tends to be contingent. That's the judgment that I'm, I'm a good person is contingent on either maybe three most common things we invested in is, you know, am I as attractive as I think I should be? You know, am I popular? Do people like me? Um, and am I successful at whatever I care about being successful at? And the thing is, is self-esteem is there for us when we succeed. But what happens when we fail? What happens when we get rejected? You know, what happens when we get older, for God's sake? Then our self-esteem starts taking a nosedive. And that's precisely where self-compassion steps in. So you might say that self-esteem is like a fair-weather friend, and self-compassion is a stable friend because it's there for you in good times, but also in bad, which is really when you need it the most. It's so interesting because I've always equated self-esteem to be the same as self-worth. And what you're saying is that it's not because you're looking externally when it comes to self-esteem. And self-worth right, is more well, about the internal dialogue. The term self-worth, you can use it as a synonym for self-esteem. But self-esteem is a judgment or evaluation. Like, I'm a good person. I'm not such a good person. I'm somewhere in between. Self-worth, the self-worth I'm talking about is kind of unconditional self-worth. 
I'm, I'm worthy just because I'm a human being. And self-compassion is a form of unconditional self-worth, whereas self-esteem is usually a conditional form of self-worth. I'm only worthy if I'm special and above average or if I achieve these, these you know, milestones. If we look at it this way, self-compassion can be a motivator in helping us cope and build resilience? Absolutely. I mean, there's almost 3,000 studies right now, and the research is pretty overwhelmingly supportive of this idea that we're more self-compassionate, either because we're naturally more self-compassionate, you know, I created a scale to measure naturally occurring levels of self-compassion, or if we train to be more self-compassionate. It shows the same thing. We're stronger, we're more resilient, we're more motivated, more effective, we're less likely to burn out, we're less selfish, we've got better well-being, we're happier, we're less depressed. Um, really, you name it, you know, self-compassion is just associated with a whole host of benefits. And the thing is, it's actually easier than what you think. You, you don't have to meditate for 30 minutes a day to earn self-compassion. You, you can, and that's actually one way to get it. But if you just simply, when you're talking to yourself, let's say you fail, or you're feeling badly about something, or scared or upset, if you just ask yourself very simply, what would I say to someone I really cared about, you know, my child or my, my partner or a good friend? And what would I, you know, naturally say if I wanted to help that person? And then if you say that same thing to yourself, you're probably being self-compassionate, right? Another, we, we aren't always compassionate to others, but we know how to be compassionate when we want to. <laughs> and so the idea is, you know, choosing to be compassionate to ourselves. And once we make that choice, it's not rocket science. We pretty much know what to do. We know what, what tone of voice to use. We know the difference between a harsh tone and a cold tone. We know supportive language versus judgmental and damning language. The other thing we can do, actually, is, is touch. Right? We kind of naturally give touch to others as an indication of support. And that's because the first two years of life, you know, babies and parents, they don't have language, so they communicate care through touch. And what the research shows is that we can communicate care to ourselves through touch. Put your hands on your heart or, like, hold your face or hold your hand. And your body, it actually activates the parasympathetic nervous system. We feel safer. We feel more supported. We start to calm down. And that's another way we can help us. And it all comes from this process of treating ourselves the way we would more normally treat another we cared about. You have conveyed the relationship to mindfulness as uh-huh. Can you explain the relationship? So mindfulness is a necessary ingredient to self-compassion. Now, now, first of all, mindfulness is broader than self-compassion. I mean, you can be mindful of eating a raisin, or you can be mindful of anything that happens in your awareness. It's more limited in compassion because it's really being mindful of any instance of suffering. You know, by definition, compassion is defined as concern with the alleviation of suffering. So it's more narrow in a way. And really, mindfulness of suffering is what allows us to, again, we, aren't, we don't ignore or belittle our, our pain. You know, if we, we don't know we're in pain or if we ignore it, we can't give ourselves support. But on the other hand, mindfulness is kind of a balanced form of awareness. It's got space in it. It's uh, non-judgmental. It uh, has equilibrium which means that we don't run away with things. Because when when we're just lost in the drama, like, oh, poor me, this is the worst thing that ever happened, then we can't really be self-compassionate either. So mindfulness gives gives us that space needed to do that little U-turn and start to treat ourselves like we'd treat someone else we cared about. So it sounds like you have to create mindfulness for yourself first and have that space to be aware. Yeah, we have to be aware of the suffering, and we have to be aware of making this choice of self-compassion. And that's probably the hardest thing about it, 
It sounds great. Why is it hard to do? Because you've got these old habits on autopilot. We just immediately go into beating ourselves up mode. And we have to be mindful and say, oh, wait a second. You know, I'm beating myself up. And then we've got to say, okay, well, I want to try something different. That is the hard part. And that's why training and practice does help. Because the more we practice self-compassion, the more that becomes a habit. It's absolutely trainable. There's lots of research that, sh- that shows that. When this comes first, right? You have to train yourself to be mindful first and then to become passionate? You don't have to. You don't, you don't have to be like do mindfulness separate. You don't have to like do mindfulness meditation or learn like abstract mindfulness, mindfulness, anything. You just have to train yourself to be mindful of your pain. And that can just be realizing, ouch, that hurt. That's all the mindfulness you need instead of ignoring it. So it's not like you've got to do two separate trainings. Your mindfulness comes from just starting to remember to be aware when you're feeling badly in some way. It helps if you have a mindfulness practice, but it's not yeah. necessary. Because that would only mean that only the mindful people could do this, right? Practice self-compassion. No. Get people to be self-compassionate just simply by having them write a paragraph, like, you know, write about the fact of how hard this is for you right now. It doesn't take special training and mindfulness to be able to do that. And yet you do have to be able to do that, you know, just just you need to remind yourself in some way. Some people put sticky notes. Uh, you know, around their office and things like that. So there's, there's different ways. To, some people put a timer on their uh, iPhone. And it's really just the remembering that's so important. And then, again, having a little perspective. Then when you do that, immediately you've got some perspective. With the pandemic, a lot of people are looking for a sense of control. How should self-compassion come into our daily lives? Yeah, I mean, so it's very natural to want to have control. I mean, that's also partly why we criticize ourselves. Part of us thinks, well, at least I I should have been able to do better, but I didn't, you know. When the reality is we don't have control. It'd be nice, but the truth is we just don't. You know, we can influence things. We can try hard to do our best to change things, but but we don't have total control. I talk about the yin and the yang of self-compassion. They're kind of two different sides to self-compassion. I'm borrowing on Chinese philosophy here. So the yin yin energy is kind of an accepting, yielding energy. You know, this is just the way things are, accepting that this is how they are. And the yang energy is more of a powerful, active energy. You know, I'm going to try, do what I can to change things or maybe protect myself or, you know, do things differently. And both sides are in self-compassion. So in, in some way, we need yin self-compassion to say, I just can't control it. This is happening. You know, I just have to kind of be with myself, with my loneliness, with the fact that I can't see my friends. You know, maybe I've lost my job. And there's a certain level of kind of acceptance we need about that fact and tenderness with that acceptance. You know, like, wow, oh, I'm so sorry. This is so hard. Like supporting ourselves through the, the pain of this while we accept that it's here. But then we also need the young form of self-compassion, which is, is there anything I can do to better things, right? So maybe I can think creatively, do something differently than I did. Like, you know, people have done that, right? If you look at all, like, the Zoom happy hours and things like that, people are finding ways to get that connection, even though it's not maybe how they ideally like. Are people inventing new ways of getting or earning employment because the old way doesn't work anymore? So kind of being creative. So we need to both accept the situation at the same time that we try as hard as we can to improve the situation. And in yin without yang, you know, the Chinese um, got it right, which is that both are necessary and they always need to be in balance. If we're more compassionate with ourselves, are we more likely to be more compassionate with others? Yes, a little bit. So what we what we show is that if we train to be more self-compassionate, it does increase compassion for others. 
But if you just look at like people naturally, like how self-compassionate are people and how compassionate are the others. It's not the case that you have to be self-compassionate before being compassionate to others, because actually that's the way most people are, right? There are many people, and by the way, women especially, women are a little less self-compassionate to men and they're a little more compassionate to others than they are to men. And so that means that a lot of people out there, especially women, are very compassionate to others and treat themselves like crap, basically. So it's not necessary to be self-compassionate before you're compassionate to others. But if you learn to be more self-compassionate, it gives you more resources. You know, it increases your capacity for being compassionate. And really importantly, what we show is that especially like for caregivers, it allows you to sustain giving to others without burning out. Because if you just, you know, if you're kind, compassionate, and supportive to others and not to yourself, eventually you're going to run dry. You're going to experience burnout. Self-compassion is very important for making sure that you don't burn out and you can basically keep on giving to others. I read studies that self-compassion has physical benefits as well. Can you share those physical benefits? Yeah, yeah. So that's the interesting thing. So it does affect the body as well as the mind. And that's basically because it operates through the nervous system, right? So the basics of the nervous system is we have sympathetic nervous system activation, which is like fight or flight mode, release cortisol and adrenaline, um, you know, it leads to things like hypertension, stress, it can lead to heart attacks, things like that. Um, and then we have the parasympathetic nervous system. It's when we feel safe and connected to others, we calm down, we have more heart rate variability, we're more relaxed, right? And so what we know is self-compassion. It reduces sympathetic activity because, you know, we aren't, we aren't like fighting ourselves, we aren't attacking the problem. We're instead feeling kind of safe because we feel connected and accepting of ourselves <laughs> decreases sympathetic activity and increases parasympathetic activity, which basically, you know, in the, in the normal way of saying it is our bodies feel more relaxed and calm. And so because our bodies feel more relaxed and calm, there are benefits like, for instance, enhanced immune function, um, fewer physical symptoms, things like colds or, you know, other, other types of ailments. There's also a little bit of research that suggests it increases telomere length, which is the, the caps of um, on the RNA, which actually predicts longevity. So again, when you when you calm your mind and you give yourself this emotional warmth, it calms down your body, and that's good for physical health. Well, these are great reasons to practice self-compassion. There's a lot of good reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of great reasons. So wrapping up, five ways we can build more self-compassion into our daily lives so that we can feel better both psychologically and physically. So first of all, just to say, if people really want to find out more about it, if they get the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook, it's like 10 bucks on Amazon. And there's 37 different practices in there. There are meditations, there are like informal practices to use in daily life. So we've actually developed a whole training program to increase self-compassion. So that's available. But in terms of just simple touch, you know, touch your heart, touch your face, give yourself a kind of warm, supportive touch. It's going to impact your body, calm yourself down, make you feel more supported. Um, another way is, is talking to yourself and yourself kindly in a supportive manner, the way you would to a good friend. But you can also do a more formal practice, like you can write a letter to yourself as if you're writing a letter to your friend and then you read it later. That's very helpful. So you can also do what's called the self-compassion break, which basically is you intentionally bring in the, the three components of self-compassion. 
So the first is mindfulness. You just remind yourself, hey, this is really hard. You know, you just acknowledge that this is hard, but in kind of a balanced way. And then you remind yourself of common humanity. This is part of life. You know, everyone goes through this. I'm not alone. And then you bring in the kindness, giving yourself the warmth and support through both words and touch. And so all of those things right there will, will make a, a big difference in your ability to, to get through the difficult times in life. This is great advice. Thank you for joining me on Spark today. You're welcome. Happy to talk to you.